Good morning, everyone. Um, our first Bible reading passage will be from Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter cheese over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The second reading comes from Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, starting from verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay their hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they, may, they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, "'Teacher,' We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven, seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of dead. He is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. 
for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So, how is he his son? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that we're not just dealing with a book like any old book. We thank you that we are dealing with the words of the living God. Father, may we receive them as such with soft hearts to understand and soft hearts to receive and respond appropriately. Amen. There's a story from back in the 1990s when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of England. She was visiting an old people's home. You know how politicians always do that when they want to make some policy announcement about old people. And as she was there, she was talking to this older lady and she realised the old lady didn't have a clue who she was. And so she said to the old, the Prime Minister said to the old lady, do you know who I am? And the old lady just looked at her and said, no, I don't. But we often forget who we are in here. So if you're having trouble remembering who you are, just talk to that lady over there and she'll be able to tell you who you are. Massive misunderstanding. In the story we're looking at, in the three stories we're looking at this morning, there is a massive misunderstanding about who Jesus actually is, who these people are talking to and putting questions to. But it's not a misunderstanding like that old lady with dementia. It's actually a tragic misunderstanding of the heart and a refusal to acknowledge who Jesus actually is. These words, starting at chapter 20, verse 19, verse 19 are words not actually spoken by Jesus. It's Luke the narrator. And Luke is giving, telling us that he's giving us historical information to tie together the stories. These are not just three random isolated stories we're going to look at together. They're not just like, you know when you go on YouTube and it'll have three recommended things to look at and you look at them and go, what's the connection between them and how are they actually connected to anything else I've looked at in the past? No, these stories actually have a deliberate order and a deliberate connection to each other. They build on each other and they interpret each other. Sometimes, though, it takes a bit of careful reading to see what the connection is. One of the keys to seeing the connection is to pay careful attention to what Luke is telling us as narrator. Luke chapter 20, verse 19, tells us that the three stories we're about to look at this morning, they happen because, in the words of verse 19, they perceived that he had told this parable against them. What parable had he told against them? Last week's story about the parable of the vineyard. The vineyard, which represented the kingdom of God or Israel, its owner, which represented God, and his son, which represented Jesus. Remember from last week's story, Israel stubbornly refuses to listen to God's prophets and to bear spiritual fruit. But despite their refusal to listen to his prophets and submit to God, 
God had graciously held out another chance to them to repent. And he sent his son. Perhaps they will respect my son. But the parable also prophesied, remember from last week in chapters, in verse 15 and 16, that they will not respect Jesus as the son of God, but they will kill him. And then God will judge them for killing his son. Remember last week in verses 17 and 18, Jesus then ramps up the story, ramps up the warnings with the warning about the stone. Jesus is the stone. If you heard the stories in Hebrew, which they originally probably spoken in, sun and stone rhyme very closely to each other. So the sun is the stone, the stone is the sun. If you do not have Jesus, the sun, stone, as the foundation of your life, if you oppose Jesus, either you will run into the stone like running into a brick wall and you'll come off second best, or he will run into you and he will crush you. So in summary, where we're starting this morning in chapter 20, verse 19, tells us that the stories we're about to hear happen because although the Jewish leaders understood intellectually what Jesus was saying, rather than heeding the warning and submitting to Jesus, instead they are proudly and stubbornly proceeding to fulfil his prophecy and plan to kill the son. That's why this happens. It's unbelievable. The warning was crystal clear. They got it intellectually. But they proceed to kill him. That's what spiritual blindness is like. Spiritual blindness can often intellectually comprehend the words of Scripture. But in their spiritual blindness, they do what we sometimes see people doing on TV, going, la, 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 not wanting to hear what's been said, and proceeds to ignore and discount what Jesus has said. In the words of Isaiah, quoted earlier in Luke by Jesus, spiritual blindness sees, but it refuses to see. It hears but it does not hear. That lays out a challenge to us as we're about to listen to Jesus' words. Firstly, in the stories this morning, I will attempt to help you intellectually understand what Jesus is actually saying. But what it also does, it lays out a challenge because embedded with these stories, within these stories, is a challenge from Jesus to respond appropriately and not to respond with a proud verdict that refuses to listen and submit. The other thing that verse 19 tells us is that the questions we're about to see in the following three stories, the questions put to Jesus are not innocent questions wanting to know the truth. 20 verse 19 tells us they sought to lay hands on him that very hour. Chapter 20, verse 20 tells us they were looking to arrest him 
and hand him over to the Romans to be killed. So, despite all their polite front and all their respectful religious posturing, it's all just a hypocritical smokescreen for their ungodly resistance to Jesus that lies beneath their questions. This is a premeditated, deliberate trap to get him, catch him, and kill him. The trap was meant to work like this. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, then the way the average Jew saw it, Jesus would be advocating financially supporting the ungodly pagan Romans that, who were oppressing their nation. But deeper than that, at a deeper level, like we see today in countries like Afghanistan, we see in countries like that where the zealous Muslim just wants the Western infidel army out of their country. You could get yourself killed for advocating financial support for them. On the other hand, if Jesus says, don't pay taxes, then as verse 20 says, they plan to take him into custody and hand him over to the Romans to be crucified for supporting a rebellion. In fact, 30 years later, something similar to that happened. 30 years later, not paying taxes was actually the trigger for the war from 66 AD to 70 AD between the Jews and the Romans. The Jews refused to pay their taxes and submit to Rome. So Rome sent in the legions and completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. In summary, if Jesus says, pay taxes... The crowds will turn against him and probably stone him to death themselves. But if he says, do pay taxes, they'll arrest him and hand him over to the Romans to be killed. They think they have the perfect trap, as humans often do when answering God. You've heard the modern attempts to trap preachers or Christians or think they're trapping God. How can God exist and allow suffering in the world? Either God would have to be evil or he doesn't exist. You've heard supposed traps like, hasn't science disproved God? How can we believe in God? These modern attempts to trap God or, Christ or Christians they're often not genuine questions wanting to know the truth. They're often designed to trap Christians and resist submitting to God and his word. If I can pretend he doesn't exist, I don't have to listen. But verse 23 tells us that in that instance, in the first century, Jesus saw through their trap and he saw through their motives. You see, Jesus not only then evades the trap, but he answers the question in a way that exposes the real heart of such questions, which is not taxes, Romans, suffering or science, 
But the real issue is the human heart before God, not wanting to submit before God. Jesus graciously gives everyone who is listening one more chance to self-examine how they are responding to God. Let me explain. He answers with the reply, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If Caesar wants his money, give it back to him. Jesus says, you're looking at this the whole wrong way. Paying taxes is not about supporting the Roman army. It's about returning to Caesar what is rightfully his as the ruling power. But again, it goes deeper than that. Let me explain how a first century Jew would have heard this conversation. A denarius was a small silver Roman coin with the image of Caesar upon it and his name and his titles around the edge. The pious Jew considered that coin to actually be an idol because it had the image of Caesar who claimed to be God and was worshipped as a god all through the Roman Empire. Jesus is saying, if Caesar wants his idol, give it back to him. Get it out the country. No pious Jew could be offended by that. Jesus then turns their trap back on themselves. He demonstrates that paying taxes to Rome is not the problem. The problem is that your heart is not devoted to God. And he does that by following it up with saying, give to God what is God's. He leaves unstated what is God's so that we can work it out. We're to work out, give to God what belongs to God. What is it that belongs to God that we are to give to him? What Jesus does, rather than just saying it plainly up front, he puts several ducks in a row so that we can see what the next duck following the row is. He expects us to work it out ourselves. One hearer I heard preaching on this passage says, what Jesus is saying is give taxes to the government and put all your money in the church plate. Can I suggest there's a grain of truth to that? But it mostly just misses the point. Give to God what is God's is about much more than money. Let's look at the wider context of the story around it and that'll put some ducks in a row for us. Remember, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 19, prompts us to read this story following on from the previous stories. Is there anything in the previous stories that speaks about giving to God what is God's? Yes, there is. Remember back in the talents parable, that's in chapter 19, verse 20 to 27, probably better called the returning king parable. The king came and he expects his servants to give back to him what he had originally given them together with evidence that they had used what he gave them for his kingdom. The king also expected his subjects to honour him 
and submit to him as, and give him honour as king. Then in the next parable, that's the vineyard parable, in chapter 20, verses 19 to 16, which Ben talked about last week, God, the owner of the vineyard, expected those living in the vineyard to give back to him the fruit of his kingdom. He expected also honour and submission to be given to his son. To honour the son was to give honour to God. So when he says, give to God what is God's, we already have a context from the previous parables. The previous parables contained an expectation of giving submission and honour to God's son and king, and also to express that submission and honour by giving back to God some of what he has given to him, or all of what he has given to him. We may have worked to earn it. We may have got it from our parents or from whatever, through our genes or whatever, but what we haven't earned ultimately comes from him. So we have ducks in a row to join. And then we have one more duck in a row which comes from today's story. How do we tell what belongs to Caesar so we can give it back to Caesar? Well, in the story, we could tell it because it had Caesar's image on it. What bears God's image so that we can give that back to God? Answer that and we know what to give back to God. What bears God's image? Humans do. Humans are made in the image of God. What is God's to give back to God? You are and I am. God has given us our life and all that we have and own. And he expects us to use that to bear fruit for his kingdom and then to give that back to him too. So this is about much more than money. God doesn't just want our money. He wants us. But at the same time, you can't say it's got nothing to do with money. In each of the stories throughout the parables, Jesus actually uses money as a symbol or a metaphor for all that we have and own. How we use our money is actually a good symbol, a litmus test for where our heart is before God. We can't say to God, yeah, you can have my heart, but my money's mine and you're not getting any of that. I'm spending that on me. It doesn't work like that. If we give ourselves to God, he owns our money too. We're just managing it for him. But primarily, the main point is give to God what is God's. You are. Let's go to the next story, the one involving the woman with the seven husbands and the resurrection. Again, this is not a sincere question. Even the text there tells us the people asking the question, the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. They also didn't believe in eternal life and they didn't believe in a judgment day where we eternally stand before God. Their sole intent in these questions is actually to mock Jesus' teaching about a resurrection and a judgment. 
They want to publicly humiliate Jesus by making his teaching look ridiculous. Just like those questions about how can God exist and allow suffering. They don't want an answer. They just want to mock Christians. Jesus doesn't give a long answer because he knows that they actually don't want an answer. He knows that they think that they have Jesus trapped. Their smug attitude means that no answer will actually satisfy them. So Jesus just cuts to the heart of the issue and he speaks for those with ears to hear. He graciously takes the evil question and answers it with truth. His whole answer just takes for given that there will be a resurrection. Verse 37 points them back to the Old Testament for proof. He refers to, in verse 35, he refers to the age of the resurrection. That's Jewish speak for what we would call the blessings of heaven. So when he says in verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to the age of the resurrection, he's saying, and he takes as a given, that there will be a judgment day and some of you will be considered worthy of entry to heaven. Finally, in verse 37, 38, he points them back to the resurrection and he says it actually happens by the power of the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The question about taxes was not really about taxes. The question about the, the resurrection and the woman with marriage was not really about marriage. It's about taking seriously God and his word and his warning about a resurrection and a judgment. How does the scene end? If you look back at verse 26 and at verse 40, you see both attempts to trap Jesus end with the questioners in silence. Let me try to put some words into that silence. Partially, the silence is, whoa, this guy knows God and really speaks God's word. We've got nothing on him. And partially, their silence means, where do we go? We've got nothing. This has completely backfired. We've been publicly humiliated by his answers. Let's just shut our mouths before we lose any more face in this situation. See, their goal was to publicly shame and destroy Jesus and his reputation. But in the shame on a contest that was going on between Jesus and his questioners, he has left them battered and bruised. He's left them try, trying to quietly slip away while no one's looking. But Jesus doesn't let them off easily. While they're trying to look to slink away and preserve what dignity they have left and lick their wounds, Jesus goes, now just wait a minute before you go. I've got a question for you. And then he pushes the point to actually humiliate them further. What he does now is he puts them on the spot. 
to highlight that they don't have a clue about God and his word. So for those with ears to hear, he gives truth that will take genuine hearers to the next level. But he also answers in a way so that, and if you, especially if you read this in the light of verses 45 to 47 following, where he really puts the knife in for the scribes who are questioning him. He answers in a way so that those with hearts who hate him and his message will actually be provoked further to really want to kill him. You see, Jesus' plan is to die as a sacrifice for sin in just three days at the Passover. So he takes it to the next level to get them so angry with him that they will grab him and kill him. Because that's his plan, to die. But he doesn't use slander and abuse to provoke them. He actually uses the truth of who he is to rouse their hatred. So what's the truth in this riddle that he gives them? The truth that can either take us to the next level to understand who he is, or the truth that can provoke our hatred for him so much that we want to just silence him and not want to hear what he's got to say. The riddle is this. In Jewish thinking, the ancestor must be greater than the descendant. But David, the ancestor, calls the prophesied son of God, son of David, who we know is Jesus, David says that the prophesied son of David would be greater than himself. So the riddle for a Jew is this. How can this be? How can David's son be greater than David himself? There's only one possible answer. And the answer is if we realise that David's prophesied son is actually God himself. He can only be greater than David by being God the Lord himself. He can only be greater than David by rising from the dead and conquering death, which David did not do. He can only be greater than David by God putting all of his enemies under his feet as he rules from his throne in heaven. Jesus' answer works three ways. Firstly, for those with ears to hear, when you solve this riddle about how Jesus can be Lord, David's Lord, you put it all together. All the stories that have gone before. Jesus is the coming king of the coming king parable. Jesus is the incarnation of the temple to whom worship, where we go to worship. Jesus is indeed the son of God, the owner of the vineyard. To give to God what is God's is to give honour and worship to his son, Jesus. Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who will raise the dead and is the God of the living. It all ties together in the riddle that he asks. But secondly, 
for those with proud, stubborn hearts who can intellectually work out the answer to the riddle, but because of their proud hearts, Jesus has them trapped. Because either they have to acknowledge that he is Lord or they have to say, i got nothing to say. Because to say anything will incriminate myself, will incriminate my refusal to submit. Thirdly, what Jesus is actually doing is he's giving those with intent to kill him, he's giving them the evidence they want to kill him in three days for claiming to be God, which they will do. It's part of his plan. So what do we do with all of this? See, a key part of Luke's style right through his gospel is to highlight different reactions to Jesus so that we are, in a sense, prompted to self-examine and go, where would we stand if we were in this story? Which side would we fall on? Are we those who do not have ears to hear, who don't like what we're hearing, and are hardening our heart against what we're hearing? Or are we those who hear and respond with a soft heart, submit to him and are hopefully taken to the next level in our understanding and submission? Let me speak first to those who are still resisting submission to Jesus. If you think you have God trapped with your questions or your assertions, whether they're out loud or quiet in your heart, if you think you have God trapped with questions like, how, does, how can God exist and allow suffering? Or how can we believe in science and the resurrection? Or even simply, how can that guy up front expect me to take this seriously? If you're one of those people, if that's going on in your heart, let me say, just stop it. Do you realise who you're dealing with? You're not dealing with me. You're dealing with God, with Jesus. Your questions and assertions won't seem that smart when you stand before Jesus, the God and King of the universe, on the judgment day. It's normal and fine to ask genuine questions. Let me encourage you to ask genuine questions. Genuine questions like, what does all this mean? How do I apply it to my life? But don't ask questions and make assertions that are really assertions of a proud heart, a proud refusal. Especially, don't ask questions that are mocking Jesus and his teaching. Such questions and assertions are playing a very dangerous game in eternity. Or maybe you're not so aggressive against Jesus' words, but like most Australians, you think you can just get away with ignoring Jesus and get on with your life. Don't be so naive. You're acting like that old lady in the nursing home who had no idea who she was talking to, but it's worse than that. You're just thinking you can ignore Jesus and get on with your life. One day you'll stand before Jesus, the judge of the world, and need to give an account. You won't be able to ignore him then. 
then your evasion tactics will be shown for what they are, a refusal to listen, and that won't end well. I plead with you, unblock your ears. Let Jesus' words get from your ears down to your heart. Submit to him before it's too late. Today is a great day for that to happen, a great day to stop your resistance. If you've realised that it's time to stop resisting, then I suggest to you the first thing to do is talk to God. Submit to God directly in words. If you'd like help with that or want to think more about how to actually do that, I'll be around after the service or Pastor Ben or a mature Christian you know would love to talk to you about how to do that. Now for a word for those with ears to hear. A word about giving to God what is God's. If God's word has gripped your heart this morning and you are convicted that he is the son of God to whom you need to give yourself and to give all you have, if that's you, then don't let the moment pass and go away and forget about it. Act on it. The first step, obviously, if you're not already, Become a Christian. Give yourself to God in prayer or talk to Ben. But what do I do if I'm already a Christian and I'm still convicted by this about giving to God what is God's? Look at those bottom four dot points there. I'm going to just quickly go through them. Give your heart. It's so easy to become a Christian and then just have so many other things that you still love in the world more than you love God. Examine yourself. What are those things that I actually love more than I love God? And it can be simple things like, I just love going to the food court and eating. I just love my Netflix. I love my lifestyle. And I just want to cling to that more than Jesus. There may be a person who you are committed to in relationship, who has your heart, who a Christian should not be committed to. Examine your heart. Have I given my heart to Jesus? Do I, how do I submit it more? Again, Ben would love to talk to you about that if you want to take that further. Your life plan, your career. Is, is what, how you're planning the rest of your life? Are you planning it in a way that goes, this is the career I want, that gives the money I want and the lifestyle I want, and then I'll think about what goes to God? No. Give to God your career and lifestyle plans. Now, for some of you, that may actually mean giving up a secular career and going into ministry. For some of you, it may mean keeping going in a secular career, but thinking about how can I use that for God's glory? How can I use that for openings to be a Christian in that environment? Or you may put the two together. I've got a son who wanted to do another career, and I actually convinced him to go into medicine, so he gave up his other career, went to medicine, because he probably wants to be a missionary, and medicine will get him into other countries better. And now he's actually decided he wants to do psych before he gives that up and becomes a, becomes a minister, because it'll actually help him understand humans better than understanding the body will help him in ministry. He's thinking about his career and his plan as though his life is God's. 
I have another friend who wanted to become a school teacher because he said, the government is giving me access to hundreds of young people who need to hear God's word. That's how I can use my life and my career for God. I don't know your circumstances. Ben would love to talk with you further about how you can use your career life plan for God. Your time management. That's one I'm still really working on. Is all the time you spend doing this, using your time for God, giving your time to God? Is your Netflix subscription that keeps you up late at night where the owner of Netflix says, the biggest thing we've got to fight is people going to bed and going to sleep. We've got to keep them glued to the TV. Is spending hours on Netflix really a reflection of giving what you, your whole life to God? No. Your budget. Are you using your money as though you are actually stewarding God's money? Now, I know it's a bit complex because God gives you a responsibility to care for those who are dependent upon you. Not to keep them and pamper them and keep them in luxury, I might add, but to care for them. God gives you responsibility with your money that you have responsibilities for to put a house over your head, not a palace over your head. Think about how you are managing your money for God. Are you using it to pamper those around you and yourself? Or are you responsibly caring with your money for those, but then going the extra indulgence with your money that could be used for God? Putting a palace over your head instead of a house over your head? It's God's money. Think about how you use it for God. I'm going to stop there. I haven't given you any definitive answer, but I've given you issues to talk through. They're going to be in the reflection question answer. And I pray and hope that the phones are going to be running hot this week with people sitting here ringing Ben or sending him emails going, hey, I just want to talk through what this means for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through the words of Jesus in the passage we have seen this morning, you have made it crystal clear to us that we need to give our lives to you through giving honour and submission to Jesus. You have made it crystal clear to us that we need to give our lives to you in so many ways. Father, guide us through the coming week as we think and pray through what submitting to you, giving to God what is God's looks like for us. Father, if we need to talk to a pastor or some other mature Christian we know who can guide us, then, Father, please let us not resist that and not do it, but let us book that appointment and talk it and pray it through with them. Father, we pray that you'll give us soft and willing hearts that give to God what is God's. Amen.